This is KMTT and the weekly Pashat HaShavua Shira. This year, Tavshin Ayin, it will be given by Harav Chanoch Vaxman. This week, Pashat Mishpatin, I would like to talk about the story of the ascent of Moshe and his kinim onto Sinai, found at the end of Pashat Mishpatim in Perak Kafdalad. And the story begins as follows in Perak Kafdalad, Pasuk Aleph. The Moshe Amar, we said to Moshe, Alei El Hashem, go up to God, ascend to God, Ata, Varon, Nadav, Aviyu, Shimim, Zignei Yisrael, you and Aaron, Nadav, Aviyu, 70 of the elders of Israel, Vishtach Abitem, Merachok, and you will bow down from afar. And then, in the command section of the story, the Torah continues on in Perakatal Pasigbet, Vinigash Moshe Levado, and Moshe will continue on from the first specified distance. He will come close alone, El Hashem to God. Vehem Loigashu. And the others, i.e., the group of Aaron, Nadav, Aviu, and the elders, the Zikinim, Loigashu will not come close. And yet, there's a third group at the end of Pasigbet, Va'am Loyalu Imo. In the people, they will remain below. They will remain at the bottom of the mountain. They will not ascend at all. And here at the beginning of the parsha, found here in Parak Kaftalad, in Parak Kaftalad, Pasuk Aleph through Bet, we have what might be considered the command to ascend the mountain given to Moshe, and which will be applied to Moshe and the elite group of Aaron, Adavayu, and his kingdom. Now, later on in the parsha, later on in Parak Kaftalad, um, we have... Um, the accomplishment of this command, beginning in Perak Kavdalid, Pasuk Tet, the Torah says as follows, Vaya'al Moshe va'aron nadav avi u'shivim Israel, and Moshe and Aaron and the others ascended exactly as commanded. And then we're told in Pasuk Yud, something actually a bit mysterious, Vayiru et eloke Yisrael, and they saw the God of Israel, v'tachat raglav kima'aseh levinata sapir, and beneath his feet was as the work of the sapphire stone. And as the, let's translate this as the, the pure translucence of the sky, whatever this means. And Pasukir Aleph continues on, after seeing this vision, or when this great vision, which apparently is the accomplishment of the Hishtachavitem, the bowing down, the worship uh, of Perakhaftal Pasuk Aleph, the Torah tells us in Perakhaftal Pasukir Aleph, and to the nobles of Israel, meaning this entire group, uh, he did not send his hand against them, and they saw God, and then they ate and drank, quite bizarre. But then the Torah continues on, after a, a brief ptucha, and says, Moshe is to continue on. So we might think of this structure, ignoring for the moment the rather strange particulars of the vision of God and the eating and the drinking done by the group, the elders, the Zikinim, at the midway point of the mountain, we have here a kind of traditional structure of command to ascend um, and accomplishment of that command to ascend later on in the parak. And the parak is on some level about this ascent. Uh, this ecstatic religious experience which is sometimes termed bowing down, which involves a vision of God, which involves eating and drinking in the presence of God. Strange, but clearly a kind of moment of religious high on some plane, and this would seem to be the topic of the parak. Now, the problem with all of this 
is the intervening material. I referred here to a uh, structure of command and accomplishment. Yet that only covers, on the one hand, in the command, psukim, aleph, and bet. And on the other hand, in the accomplishment, psukim, tet, through yud, aleph. But of course, there's a kind of main body of the parak which appears smack in the middle of this frame, uh, part of it which is quite well known to all of us. Let us pick it up in parak kafdalid, pasuk gimel, for the moment. In parak kafdalid, pasuk gimel says as follows. Ve'avo Moshe, and Moshe came, va'yisaper la'am et kol divrei Hashem. Immediately after the command to ascend the mountain, suddenly we find Moshe coming to the people and telling the people all of the divrei Hashem, all of the words of God, ve'kol mishpatim, and likewise all of the laws. Va'yam kol la'am kol echad, va'yamru kol advar ma'shadibra Hashem na'aseh. All of the matters which God has spoken, we will do. Now most probably, if we follow Ibn Ezra and Ramban, et kol divrei Hashem in pasuk gimel, is a om, almost near technical reference to the Dvarim of Hashem, the Aser Tadibrot, the words spoken by God in Perak Kaf. And the next clause, Ve'et Kol HaMishpatim, also found in Pasuk Gimel, is probably, again, a technical reference to the entire Parashat Mishpatim, which begins in Perak Kaf Aleph, and runs, of course, to the end, more or less, of Perak Kaf Gimel. So here we are, immediately after the Aser Tadibrot of Perak Kaf, and after the Mishpatim of Kaf Aleph, Kaf Bet, and Kaf Gimel, and Moshe comes and tells everything to the people, the Devarim and the Mishpatim, and they say, Naaseh, we will do them. Pasuk Dalet, Ve'ichtov Moshe et kol divrei Hashem, and Moshe wrote down everything at this point, i.e., the Aserat HaDibrot and Parshat Mishpatim, Ve'yashkem Baboker, he got up in the morning, we even Mizbeach, built an altar, Tachat Tahar, at the bottom of the mountain, Nushtem Esrei Matzibar, Lishnei Masai Shefti Yisrael. So in addition to an altar built at the top of the mountain, there were twelve Matzibot, uh, uh, erected, each one in accord or representing one of the tribes of Israel. Now, in addition to the writing and the building, we have something else in Pasuk Parim. And um, then uh, Moshe sent the youths of Israel and they brought various karbanot, olot, shlamim, etc. Now, as this goes on, things develop even more, and something is done with the blood of the karbanot. Pasuk vav, Moshe Moshe took half of the blood, and he put it in flasks, half the blood was thrown in the altar, then he took the sefer habrit. What is the sefer habrit? Apparently, what he had just written down, everything he'd written down in Pasuk Dalad, the Dvarim Mishpatim, what the people of said, Na'aseh about, Ve'ikrava asneha am, he read it out into the ears of the people, Ve'yomru, Kol asheh diber Hashem na'aseh v'nishma. Now, where beforehand the people had only said, Na'aseh, on the oral version of the Dvarim Mishpatim, now, upon hearing read out to them out loud the written version, they say, Na'aseh v'nishma. Writing is more serious than speech, and nishma, na'aseh v'nishma, is more serious than na'aseh. And of course, this is the famous part of the parak. What we sometimes tend not to remember is what happens next. Pasachet. Ve'ikach Moshe adam Moshe took the blood that had been in the flasks. Here's the blood of the covenant. Ashakarat Hashem that God has made with you. I'll call all these words. I they say for a brit. End. And then pasachet. Ve'yam Moshe The accomplishment of the ascent command. Now, what's obvious here is that Smack in the middle of the parak, or in the middle of the parsha, between Psukim Gimel through Chet, we have here the story of a covenant ceremony. A, it, the term Brit is used twice. It's not just a covenant, but it's a, it's a blood covenant, um, which where half of the blood is sprinkled on the Mizbech and half of the blood 
is sprinkled on the people. And Moshe says, Hine dam habrit. Here is the blood of the covenant. So we have a blood covenant made upon the Sefer Habrit. And this is the story of Nasev and Mishnah, which is smack in the middle of this parak. Now, the obvious question on some level is, what is the connection between the main body of the parak and the frame? Uh, in the frame, in the command segment at the beginning of the parak, Kafdalit Aleph through Bet, we have this command to ascend, to go up onto the mountain, to be with God. The command for the kind of ecstatic vision, seeing, eating and drinking that is, of course, accomplished later on in the parak in Psukim Tetri Yud Aleph. But in the middle of this, we kind of switch scenes to the bottom of the mountain. And at the bottom of the mountain, we find the altar and the monuments and the blood and the book, uh, the ceremony of the covenant, the Brit Sinai. And the question is, what exactly is the connection between the frame the ecstatic religious ascent, and the main body, the details of Brit Sinai, the story of Brit Sinai, the story of the covenant, how do we integrate them together? What do we make of this apparent connection or integration by the Torah? And that is kind of the primary issue I'd like to try to work out or talk about in the sheet work. Now, in addition to this question of integration between the ascent and the covenant, um, I would also like to talk about a, a relatively technical question. One of the details... Uh, of the covenant zone, which I think is pretty interesting and may require, although many of them require explanation, I think requires explanation. If we view the uh, first part of Parak Kafdala, the Parsha of Alei that we have been discussing, as consisting of approximately 11 psukim with the structure of frame and main body, there um, is a, a pasuk that appears somewhere near the middle. Now, um, many recent commentary, commentators on the Torah have made the point that often in a, in a story in the Torah, what appears near the, the middle, or what can be thought of as the central axes uh, of, the, of the story, often plays a kind of primary role, uh, features a key element that's crucial to the meaning or the understanding of the story. And here, if we take a look in Pasuk He, we have something quite interesting. And Moshe sent the Narei B'nei Yisrael Alu Olot, and they brought these karbanot. I'm already now in Pasuk Vav. Moshe took half of the blood and he split the blood and half the blood on the Mizbeach. And then apparently karbanot here are somewhere near the middle, perhaps central. And whether they're central or not central, I think it's certainly an interesting question as to what the role of the karbanot here are in this covenant ceremony or in this overall story in general. Now, we might say that um, the carbonate are just almost a means, uh, a way to get blood. And you shech the carbonate, you slaughter the carbonate, make the sacrifices to get the blood, and then you have the blood to do the covenant ceremony because this is, after all, a blood covenant. But, on the other hand, it would, one would think that there's something deeper going on uh, in the mention of the carbonate, the sacrifices here at the middle. And I'd like to try to unpack uh, the deeper meaning or the centrality, perhaps, of karbanot, of sacrifices, in this story of ascent, in the story of the covenant. Um, okay, so those are all our various projects for the rest of this short sheet or. Um, now, to begin, I'd like to start from a slightly different place uh, to kind of map out what might be thought of as a kind of local uh, reading of karbanot in the story here, a kind of local interpretation. And to get to this, I would like to consider a kind of very strange detail of our overall story and a comment of Rashbam, as well as some material which may help us from Sefer Breshit. Let us begin by taking a look at 
um, Parakhafdalit, Pasuk uh, Yud, where uh, in the accomplishment part of the story, Moshe, Aaron, Adav, Avihu, and the elders go up the mountain, and there is this astounding vision of God. Again, in Parakhafdalit, Pasuk Yud, we are told, they see God, etc., and it looked this way, and under his feet, etc., and then again, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, they envision God. There is this very, very bold and strange claim of the seeing of God. Now, many of the medieval commentaries, especially the ones more philosophically oriented, dealt with this in numerous ways. Um, and there are many interpretations of what exactly this vision consisted of. But I would like to share with you uh, a claim made by Rashbam about why the vision takes place. Not so much what it's about, its content, but uh, the very fact that it happens. And commenting upon the vision, uh, Rashbam has a, a, a fascinating comment which sends us back in a certain way to Sefer uh, Breshid. He says as follows, on Parak Kaftal, Pasuket Aleph, V'kan chalak lahem HaKadosh Baruch Hu kavod. Um, and here God gave them honor or glory. Umipnei kritut habrit. And because of the making of the covenant near Alehem, he appeared to them. Kemoshe pirashti bibrit bin haptarim. As I explained to you in the covenant of the pieces made by Abraham and God. Asher avar bin hagzarim ha'ela. Viktiv sham bayom ahu karat Hashem et Abraham brit v'chulei. Now, Rashbam sends us back to Sefer Breshit to the story of Brit ben Abitarim, to the covenant um, between the pieces, and tells us that's key for understanding Perak Kafdalid. So let us go back there to try to understand exactly what Rashbam had in mind. Um, well, we all should remember the story of Brit ben Abitarim back in Breshit, Perak Tetvav, Pasuk Tet, Perak Tetvav, Pasuk Tet says as follows. After Avraham had asked God, how do I know that I will inherit the land in Perak Tetvav, Pasuk Tet, God says, uh, Take me an eagle, or three of them, three goats, other animals, Pasuk Yud, And they were split down the middle. The animals were split into pieces. And the pieces were arranged one across from the other. This idea that the animals are split into two and there are two sides that are set up. And the notion of there being two sides or the two-sidedness, which is a feature of the story of Bipim is kind of a, a marker of a covenant because in a covenant, in any kind of Kritat Brit, there are going to be two sides. So one of the markers of covenant that we learn about from the story of Bipim is two-sidedness. Now, again, there have to be two parties. So Avraham, this is a covenant between Avraham and God. Avraham is, is present in the covenant but the question is, on some, so, on, on some level, where, where is God? And the answer as to where is God, God is not just found in speech in the covenant, but later on in the story, and this is a point that Rashbam uh, alluded to or made explicit later on in Shemot Perkav Dalad, God, so to speak, appears as part of this covenant story between God and man. In Perak Tadvav Pasak Yudzayin in Breshit, the Torah says as follows, and uh, the sun was setting, it was dusky. And there was a, a smoky entity and a, 
a torch of fire that passed between the Xerim. Now, smoke, of course, well, smoke looks somewhat like a, a cloud on some level, and of course a fire looks like a fire. And cloud and fire, or smoke and cloud and fire, these are, of course, classic symbols of the presence of Shekhinah, of the presence of, divi- of the divine, and as part and parcel of the two-sided covenant ceremony, Avram sees a vision of God, or sees some sort of vision of the divine presence. There's Gilu Shekhinah, revelation of the presence of God as part of the covenant between Avraham and God. And later on, what Rashbam is telling us is that so too in our story, um, there is a vision of God. And when the uh, Moshe, Aaron, and the Zikinim ascend the mountain and they see God, that's the Gilu Shekhinah, that's the revelation, that's a necessary quality of um, the covenant ceremony that's happening here, and hence the vision. Now, um, in point of fact, although Rashbam does not uh, make the point, uh, our story in Perak Kafdalit uh, does not just contain Gilu Shekhinah, but also contains that other marker of a covenant between um, man and God, uh, or of any covenant per se, uh, that notion of two-sidedness. What I'd like to do is to map out um, the notion of two-sidedness found in Perak Kafdalit in chapter 24 in Parashat Mishpatim, our story of covenant, before turning back to the particular question of Karbanot that we raised a few moments ago. Um, if we pick it up for the moment in Perak Kafdalid, Pasuk Vav, there are some obvious markers of two-sidedness. Veikach Moshe Chatsi Hadam. Moshe took half of the blood of the Karbanot. Vayasem Ba'aganot. And he put them to put it into flasks. Vechatsi Hadam. And half of the blood. Zarak al He threw onto the altar. So there are two bloods, two halves. Um, and, of course, half the blood goes on the Mizbeach, representative of God. Now, in Pasuk Zion, we're told, sefer habrit, vayomru kol Now, there's the, there isn't just two bloods, but there's also, well, there's one book here, the Sefer Habrit, which consists of the Aseret Hadibrot and the Mishpatim. There's the Torah, which is written by human hand here, called the Sefer Habrit, and there only seems to be one of them. But, the truth is, if you go on in the parsha, jumping beyond the framework that we've dealt with now, when Moshe is eventually commanded in Parak Kavdal to go all the way up the mountain, Parak Kavdal Pasuk Yidbet says, I'll give you the stone tablets. There's actually another copy. There isn't just the copy that Moshe wrote down, the Sefer Abrit of the Aserta Debrot and the Mishpatim, but there's also in Pasuk Yudbet, the Luchota Even, the stone copy uh, of the Aserta Devot written by divine hand, Ashekatavti Dorotam, Vatarava Mitzvot. Again, probably Sefer Mishpatim, etc., written by the divine hand. So there's two sidedness in the two bloods, and there's two sidedness in the two copies of the Torah, divine, human, etc. And of course, there's something else. Um, there's an interesting question uh, discussed by the Mefarshim. How was it possible for Moshe to sprinkle the blood onto uh, the people? Um, we're told in Parakavdalit Pasuk told in Parakavdalit Pasuk Chet Ve'ikach Moshe Tadam Ve'izrok Ha'la'am Ve'yomer Hinei Dam Habrit He sprinkles the blood onto the people quote-unquote Ha'am is the word of the Torah um, and this is the Dam Habrit but there are really quite a few people 600,000 more um, how would it be physically possible for Moshe 
to sprinkle the dam on all the people. Now, some of the Mepharshim, Ibn Ezra amongst them, tell us that the blood is not sprinkled upon uh, the people, but it's sprinkled upon the Zakinim, the elders as representatives of the people. But here, our Barbanel has a comment, I think, which is rather sharp and uh, quite possibly correct, and he says as follows um, here in our parak. He asks, um, How could Moshe have sprinkled the blood on all of that great quantity, that great number of people that was there? And then he cites the opinion that there are those who believe that the blood was sprinkled only upon the Zikinim. And then Abar Benel says as follows, Vani Achshov, Shezarak Chatsi Hadam Al HaMizbeach Hashem. Half the blood is sprinkled on the Mizbeach, or thrown on the Mizbeach. Vechatsiav Al HaMatsevot Shayu Kneged Shifte Yisrael. And half of it was thrown onto the Matzevot, the stone monuments that are uh, accord with, a representative of the tribes of Israel. Vazeh Amash Zarak and on this it was said it was thrown on the people, but not really physically the people, rather on the matzevot, the stone matzevot that represented the people. Because the uh, monuments indicated the people. What Ababinel points out to us is that the two bloods, one is thrown on the Mizbeach and one is thrown on the matzevah. And if so, we have here a kind of another duality. There are the two stone matzevot, there are the twelve stone matzevot representing the people, the side of the people, the blood is thrown upon them. And there's, of course, the mizbeach. And the language of the mizbeach, vayiven mizbeach, probably a mizbeach made out of stone. And there's the stone mizbeach representing the side of God, um, which the blood is thrown upon as well. So we have another sense of dual sideness, not just the two bloods and not just the two copies of the Book of the Covenant, human and divine, but also the duality or the doubleness of the Matzivot versus the Mizbeach, both made out of stone, which of course the blood is thrown on both of them, according to Abar Benel. Now, we are almost ready to close off the issue of the Karbanot. Uh, how do Karbanot fit in with all of this, or do they fit in uh, at all with all of this? Well, I think to understand all of this, we need to turn to another funny detail of the ascent of uh, Moshe Aaron and this came into the mountain, and to another story in Breshit, so to speak, on the model of Rashbam as Rashbam taught us. Um, so, there's another important story of covenant uh, in Sefer Breshit, and let us go back to Perak Lamed Aleph in Sefer Breshit, towards the end of Parshat Vayetze, uh, the story of Brit, of covenant between Lavan and Yaakov. Um, Lavan chases down Yaakov when Yaakov left, and then there's a, 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 a strange and rather hostile conversation between Lavan and Yaakov, where Lavan claims everything belongs to him, and of course Yaakov had said that it all belongs to him. But then, strangely enough, at the conclusion of this conflict, or as a way to resolve the conflict between them, Parak Lamed Aleph, Pasuk Memdalid in Breshit, says as follows, Va'ata l'cha nichrata brit v'ani va'ata v'yel le'ed b'ni u'v'necha. Lavan suggests that we should make a covenant, nichrata brit, myself and yourself, it will be a testimony or a monument, perhaps, between the two of us. And how does the covenant work in the story of Yaakov Levan? Lamed Aleph, Pasig Memvav, says as follows. Yaakov took a stone and set it up as a single pillar or a single monument. So one feature of the covenant of Levan and Yaakov is not just a, the term Brit, but B, well, second feature, B, uh, the stone Matseva. 
And then, uh, and then there's a bunch of stones. And they ate there uh, at the stone monument. So, and then a bit later on, there's another mention of food. Um, we're told in Periklamet al Pasuk Nundalad, uh, so there's bread and there's meat, there's a meal, there's slaughtering. So if we think about the elements that you have here, of course you have the two-sidedness of Lavan and Yaakov, you have the term Brit, but you also have the stone, uh, we have the Matseva, and we have the slaughtering. And all these five elements of the two-sidedness, the Brit, the stone, the Matseva, and the slaughtering of animals cannot help but, so to speak, foreshadow or remind us of our story per Kaftal, which of course has Brit and two-sidedness and Evan and Matseva and slaughtering. But there's one point we're yet missing, the meal. Part of the story of a covenant, or maybe any covenant, or the covenant between Laban and Yaakov, is the covenantal meal that seals uh, the contract, the bargain, the engagement, or the discussion between Laban and Yaakov. Now, that may be interesting, and apparently it might not seem to have any uh, correspondence in our story in Perk But the answer is, the parallel is in fact complete, and our story Perk also includes a covenantal meal, at least according to many of the Mepharshim, and let us now return to that very strange detail uh, at the end of the ecstatic ascent of uh, Moshe, Aaron, and his Kenim, uh, after they see God. What do they do? Almost in a kind of jarring note of dissonance in Perk Kavdalit, Pasuk Yuf Aleph, Vayechazu Eta'elokim, and they saw God, Vayochlu Vayishtu, and they ate and they drank. Why are they eating and drinking uh, as part of whatever is going on here, as part of seeing God? And the answer is, of course, this is on some level the meal in front of God, or the meal in front of the other who the covenant is made with, is the covenantal meal. Um, as we saw in the model of Yaakov and Levan, which seals and brings together the parties in the covenant. Now, all of the Mepharshim, or many of the Mepharshim, and here I build upon Ibn Ezra, Ramban, and Rashbam, all say that the Achila, uh, uh, that is mentioned here at the end of Pasuk Yud Aleph, has a particular nature. And I'll read you Ibn Ezra's comment. Ibn Ezra says, V'yechlu v'yishtu, V'sheyardu smichem me'ahar, V'yechlu zivchei shlamim shezavchu na'areihem. What did they eat, or what is the Achila here? The Achila is the Achila of the shlamim, of the Karbanot. And this is what Rashbam says, and this is how Ramban explains it. In other words, now let us go back to Perak Kafdalid, Pasuk Hey, the Karbanot that we discussed previously, and it says, And so these Shlamim, according to Rashbam, Ibn Ezra, and Ramban, are the covenantal meal that later on the Zakenim and Moshe and Aaron consume. Now, if you think about it, there are two sets of Karbanot. There are Shlamim, and there are Olot. Now, for those of us who remember our Sefer Vayikra, or our Hilchot Kodeshim, there is a crucial halachic difference between the Ola and the Shlamim. The Shlamim is primarily consumed by human beings, right? or partially consumed by human beings. And in this sense, uh, it brings shalom, it brings wholeness or peace, etc. But the Ola is completely consumed upon the Mizbeach. But wait a second. 
we then realize that if the eating and drinking in the story of Perak Kafdalat at the end of the story is representative of the covenantal meal, which is necessary for a covenant between two parties, there are two types of karbanot that are mentioned here in Perak Kafdalat Pasakei. There is the shlamim that's consumed by the human side of the Brit, and of course there is the olah that is consumed by the mizbeach completely and totally, symbolic of the divine side of the Brit. In other words, we can make the claim that the karbanot are an inherent part of the two-sided nature of the Brit or of the Brit story. They are both the covenantal meal and also the two-sided aspect of it. They to consume the shlamim by humans and the olah by the side of the mizbeach. So everything really on some level here fits together. That we have the two-sidedness of the two books and the two-sidedness of the two bloods and the two-sidedness of the altar and the mizbeach. Um, and likewise, the two-sidedness of uh, the karbanot, that olah the shlamim, and the Olav Shlamim, as part of this two-sidedness theme, are also part of um, the covenantal meal uh, that is consumed by Am Yisrael as part of the contracting of the covenant with God. To put this all together, although I've primarily talked about some of the details of the story, the strange vision of God, the strange eating, uh, how to understand Karbanot, etc., um, whether we realize it or not, we've kind of put together here a kind of understanding, an integrated understanding of the entire story of Perak Kaftalish. And to finish this off, I would like to go back to the first question we raised, which was, this is a story of ecstatic ascent. Um, Moshe and Aaron and Zkenim are told to ascend the mountain. And eventually they accomplish this ascent of the mountain and they see God and there's some sort of festival, uh, something astounding that happens to them. Um, and we raise the question, well, what's the connection between that and the Kritat Brit found at the main, in the main heart of the story, in the main body of the story with the carbonate at the middle? And the answer to this question really is, is that these two things are one entity. These two things are, are one unit. In fact, the ecstatic ascent serves the purpose or completes the covenant. The covenant between God and Israel is not really complete without uh, some sort of gilishina. The covenant between God and Israel is a marker of that covenant. The covenant, between, as we learned from the story of Bidfin Abitarim, the covenant between God and Israel is not really complete without a, a full sense of two-sidedness. Not just the blood and not just the books and not just the Mizbeach and vis-a-vis the Matzevot, but also although it's hard for us to, to say or to imagine, the sharing of the meal and the eating and the drinking at the end of the ascent um, and the karbanot at the bottom, they all kind of represent that sharing that's part and parcel of the covenant story. In other words, the religious ecstasy, the festival, etc. finishes off the covenant. It is the handmaiden of the covenant. The story is really a covenantal story. It's a story of Brit Sinai and everything else is really just part and parcel of that. That is certainly one way to understand things here. Um, now, I would just like to finish off, uh, although I would have liked to uh, um, uh, out, map out a kind of another theme, um, that we, we should put this kind of all in proper perspective, because what happens here in Parak Kafdalid has on some level been anticipated for uh, quite a, a long time in the Sefer. And I would very briefly um, like to go back uh, to the first encounter um, between um, Paro and Moshe. And uh, the first dialogue between Paro and Moshe 
kind of add a, a kind of additional point or a kind of structure some of what I said in a slightly different way. Um, in Shmot, Parakei, um, Moshe comes to Paro for the first time. Um, and uh, he comes to him and, and says to him as follows, The Torah says as follows, Parakei Paskalov, V'achar bo Moshe v'aron v'yemru el Paro, Ko amar Hashem elokei Yisrael, Shalach et ami v'yachogu li b'midbar. Um, send my people and they will celebrate. It will be a Chag, a holiday in the desert. And although the Torah does not really um, tell us exactly what the Chag is, Paro understands it obviously in a particular way. Um, and Paro says, oh, because they're lazy, uh, actually it's not, not in fact the case. A few sukim later, Moshe says that they want to go Shlosh Jemim Bamidbar Hashem Elokeinu. They want to sacrifice to God. So, in the dialogue between um, Moshe and Paro, there's this perspective religious holiday, the, the sacrifice to God. There's this talk of Karbanot. And throughout the entire story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, really throughout the, the first part of the Sefer, which kind of runs from Parak Aleph to Parak Yudchet, the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, there's always this talk of the religious festival in the desert, the sacrifice to God. Shlach Ami Viavduni, send my people, they will serve me. Karbanot, who's going to sponsor the Karbanot, who's going to bring the Karbanot. And the talk goes back and forth between Paro and Moshe. Now, strangely enough, when Am Yisrael leave uh, Mitzrayim, the Karbanot don't happen. All of the talk of religious festival, religious holiday, sacrifice to God kind of falls away, it melts away, and they, they wander around the desert and, and they don't sacrifice to God, and not when they first come to Hasinai. And you might be tempted to think that it was all really maybe just part of some sort of negotiating strategy vis-a-vis Paro. Some sort of some sort of Dibra Torah Blashon Paro, saying something to Paro that he could kind of understand. Oh, everyone needs a religious festival. Everyone needs a bit of, of holy day or a bit of holiday in that sense. But that wouldn't be correct because here at the end of Perak Kaftala, towards the end of the whole story of Har Sinai, the end of um, the second part of the book, after the Aserta Dibrot and after um, the uh, Mishpatim, and as part of the story of Nasev Nishma, as part of the making of the covenant and the book of the covenant, as part of this commitment to the details of law, suddenly here in Perak Kaftal Pasakei, exactly the middle of our story of religious ascent, here is the religious festival. Here is the Avodat Hashem talked about all along. And again, it's the same idea that the Religious ascent, the festival, the ecstasy, the joy, the connection to God, the ascending the mountain, the holiday in the desert, it doesn't exist as a separate category. But it's part and possible of the category of Kritat Brit. And it only happens here and now in the story of Kritat Brit to make the point that these two categories are the same thing. The service of God, the worship of God, the karbanot, the spirituality, and the commitment to the details of the law, these are not conflicting, but rather complementary and unified categories. And I think this is the story of Perak Kafdalaj.